Right, let's remember together this is God's word. And can I tell you that the first word of chapter 3 of the book of Philippians is one of the biggest encouragements for me as a preacher. How far through the book is he? Halfway. What does he say in his first word? It's great, isn't it? I now have eternal excuse to tell you it's my last point when I'm only halfway through. Is that right? But what happens here in Paul's thought is that he's just like, hold on, something here needs to be reset. And in fact, we want to be a little bit nervous here because, well, you can see what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's what it's about. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Now, this isn't because he's run out of material. He's about to say something to a church in Philippi that... But the bottom line is, as we said earlier, we can be people who can answer a test on certain things about the Christian life. But it's okay to know it up here, but it's as if it leaks out of here, doesn't it? The Lord God loves me and will always do that. I can say that in here, but through the week, other things crowd in, and it's as if my heart leaks. It's like a colander, you know, just dripping out of there. So I arrive at church the next Sunday, yeah, I know the Lord God, but there's no connection there between us and the heart. There are certain truths, certain realities about who God is, what we're like, how he treats us, what he's doing in the world, that bring great relief, that bring great joy and hope, but they like leak out of us. So he says to them, look, you spiritual amnesiacs, you need to get your equilibrium back. I'm going to tell you this, and it's a great thing, it's a safeguard. You need to hear this again and again and again. In fact, you need to live it, you need to breathe it, you need to feed on it every day. So all of God's word is truth, and all of it is equally true, but there are central key truths that sort of run through the whole of the Bible. And this one that we're looking at today doesn't come more central. It is the heart of the gospel. And he says, if we get it, you'll be rejoicing. It will be a safe guard to you. And part of the reason he has to go into this is because they're under attack. Can you see the hint there? Can you see that in verse 2? Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Great translation in the NIV, but actually in the original, three times it says watch out or look out. It doesn't say watch out for, uh, and then list three things. It says watch out for those dogs, look out for those men who do evil, look out for those mutilators of the flesh. What's Paul saying? He's saying, listen, there's stuff here that's coming at you that could slip past security. Now, the enemy of our soul isn't stupid. He knows that if he comes down in his supposed red suit and horns and tail, marches down Gamworth Road into Speak Baptist Church, he's not going to fool us. We're not that dumb. But what he does is he will come and bring subtle truths that have a ring of truth to them that might entice us, intoxicate us, and draw us away from the real place where hope and joy is found. And if there's one thing that has slain 10,000, 10,000 souls, it is the false idea that he's coming at these Philippians here. Can you see him? Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh... And then it comes up, uh, and it co- uh, comes up in the next verse. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. You say, hold on, what does that mean? 
What we find in here is there are fellows who were following the Apostle Paul wherever he went to preach a sermon about trust in Jesus Christ. He should be your confidence. He has paid the penalty for your sin and his merits are given to you. You have got a right standing before God achieved by Christ at the cross and by his perfect life, death, resurrection. It's done for you. So Paul goes around preaching that and then trotting along behind him come these people who are very religious who use all the right church language, and they say, they're good, that's what Paul says, wasn't it? You need Jesus, don't you? But what you also need, you need to do a few things too. You need, to, you need Jesus, his cross, plus this, this, and this. In this case, it was, they were known as Judaizers. They were trying to get um, people who trusted in Jesus as the sole hope for them being right with God. They were trying to get them to trust in Jesus and keep a lot of the Old Testament rules and regulations. Not least of all, if you're a fella, actually having the snip being circumcised, which was a mark of belonging to God's people in the Old Testament. Yeah? So Jesus, although those things that were in the Old Testament were anticipating Jesus, looking to Jesus, um, giving us an anticipation of his greatness, his glory and all that he will do, they weren't there to get you in with God. And these guys say you need Jesus plus a little bit more. Now Paul here, he's used, I mean he's a scholar, isn't he? So he's a restrained and gentle man. You've seen him as we've moved through the books. He speaks words of gentle encouragement. But here, he's like, watch out for them dogs. Now, dogs isn't like Fido. Back in that day, flea-bitten, mangy, disease-ridden, <laughs> mangy creatures. He says they're dogs. They're actually just, they think they're doing good, but they're, they're ripping hope, ripping joy, ripping confidence out of people. They're destroying. And the problem with it is, says Paul, it's contagious. It will, it's a killer counterfeit. Watch out. It wrecks lives. It wrecks relationships. And every day it will be calling for your confidence. And my problem as I stand before you is I used to be one of them. Now actually, I need to edit that. I still am. I have a natural bent in my heart to say, Jesus is great. But have I had a good week or not? Have I done this or have I done that? Some of you this week, it's nuts, isn't it? Some of you this week haven't prayed because you felt you couldn't because you were having a bad week. What does that tell you about the way your heart ticks? It tells you that you think your relationship to God is related to your performance. That you bring something to the deal other than your sin. And Paul says, you go down that route, my friend. Death. In in a second, he's going to bring up rubbish. And we'll talk about that word rubbish and what it actually means. If you're struggling to rejoice in Christ today, I'm going to diagnose it on the spot. If you can't see why we would get so excited and sing those songs, if if you're struggling to... It's because somewhere in there, you're a dog. Isn't he polite? Isn't it complimentary? Somewhere in there you're saying that your performance plays a bigger part than really God will allow. (laughs) The problem is it looks like the answer, doesn't it? It says, right, trust Jesus and keep all the rules. And you're like, hold on. 
Yeah, because God wants us to live free, doesn't he? He wants us to do the right thing. Yes. And this is one of the problems. Where I, mean, I love my, my, all the crew come to the Welcome Club. They're brilliant. But most of them, as I speak to them, most of them have got this idea that actually, when, when I say God doesn't use your good works as a way of getting right with him, what they hear from me is, he's telling us don't be good. He's telling us God, aren't God doesn't want us to, to live a new, refreshed and changed life. He doesn't want us to do that. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, no, no, the Bible tells us brilliant holiness, living right, making good choices, putting other people before yourself, seeking to listen to God and do what he said. Brilliant. But you can't use any of that as a way of getting right with God. It's great as a way of living, but not as a way of relating to God or even to other people for that matter. So in this passage what we find is Paul holds up two whole different approaches to life and God. Person A is God's a guide, he's a help, Jesus does something to help me, but really deep down the deciding casting vote on my acceptability before God lies with me. I provide, and the word in here is righteousness, and we'll look at that in just a second, I provide my own righteousness. I I deliver it. Person B is, I'm stuffed. I try my best, and sometimes it's pretty good, but I'm not stupid enough to think it's good enough to get in with God. If I'm ever going to be in with God, I am going to need a righteousness beyond my own. I'm going to need Him to provide me with a righteousness. I I don't know whether this will work. I was thinking about an example for this. I was trying to think of my sister-in-law. Now, my sister-in-law, she's a wonderful sister-in-law, but she's ridiculously intelligent. I'm talking stupidly intelligent. So she's got, like, um, not just a first-class degree, but a a PhD from Cambridge. And when she was working full-time before she had the kids, she used to work down in the the cabinet offices. When Gordon Brown was chancellor, she used to advise him in procurement policy. Really clever. When she was 18, back in the days when A-levels were actually hard to do, no offence teenagers, back in the days when A-levels were hard to do, and most people got three, maybe three and a half, she got five at grade A. And we, uh, it was worked out back then that it was, do you remember the old bucket points? If you wanted to get accepted into a university, if you wanted to gain access, if you, if you wanted to be welcomed in by a university, you had to get a certain number of bucket points. And... The bare minimum she, you needed to get to be able to get into a university was four. She got 48. She had enough merit and academic righteousness to get 12 people into university. Now, why do I bring that to you? You can either say, I will rely on my own achievements and hope that will get me in, or you can rely on the provision of somebody else's righteousness for you. And this is where it's at today. Who do you look to for your righteousness? Your right standing? Before God supremely, but whatever it is between you and God will actually trickle down and be seen in the way that you relate to other people. And that's why so often, well I was trying to think of examples of this, we're, we're all desperately hungry for sort of like a covering, a righteousness. A righteousness for, basically, it's like, it's like that. It is a CV. It's an argument for why I am worth something and why you should let me in. 
So if you want to get a job, you submit your CV with the list of things on it and say, I am worth coming in here because I've had these skills, these experiences, these qualities, these get me in, these are my coverage. I hold them in front of me and say, da accept me. But that works out in all different levels of life as well, doesn't it? I, maybe I've bought this one too. I can't remember or not whether I have. We, we, we drag up all kinds of things that we use as our righteousness. Have you noticed how some, quite often teenage girls are really nervous about going on a photo? Out come the cameras, they run a mile. Why? Because, well, their righteousness is at risk. You want to take a photo which actually records what they actually look like. And that's a really scary prospect, isn't it? You're making a record of their righteousness and they don't want you to. Okay? What about if you're somebody who doesn't take criticism very well? Maybe somebody comes and brings you a comment, whether it was thought through well or not, you know. But you can't you have to go to Gasmart ten. Why? Because I can't face the idea that somebody might question I, I, I need righteousness from somewhere. And up to this point in my life I've been looking for it from within me. You know, sometimes what we do, we're always sizing one another up, aren't we? So what we'll do is, we size one another up, and the, the second we walk into the room, we're, we're looking at people and we're thinking, is there anybody who I can identify with and just come somewhere near to? Or, what is my place? I was speaking to a lad who's just moved to a, um, a new school, and I said, that must be terrible. You go into a classroom and nobody knows who you are, they stand you up in front, he says, and they say, this is such and such, and he's just standing there, and it's like... Everybody is sizing him up. I'm like, well, how do you go? How do you, um, how, how do you decide who you're going to go and talk to? How, how, how do you decide who's worth going and talking to? I, it, and he said, he was dead honest with me. He said, what I do is I listen to the way they talk and I figure out whether they're a nerd or whether they're fun. That's a teenage life. He's just being dead honest, isn't it? And the fact is, you and I are exactly the same. For those of you who perhaps um, moved to a new workplace out of the area or moved uh, to do studies somewhere else and you go in on the first day and you're like, you're checking everybody out, aren't you? And we all try and put this. So what we do is we size other people up. We're also being sized up from everybody, by everybody else. And we're terribly frightened of the idea that we won't match up and won't be accepted. But possibly the, the harshest and the cruelest judge, if you like, of our acceptability is ourselves. Some of you will say something silly today in front of other people. And you will go home and you will rerun it and rerun it and beat yourself up and say, bad me, bad, bad me. Or else others of you will say, do you know why I said something so wise? And what you'll do is you'll go home and you'll talk to whoever's near you at home and you say, we had a conversation of this and I said this. Oh, how wise I am. Why? Because we're always looking for ways to affirm our worth, what we have to offer. We're always trying to... It's as if we claw on the I must have a covering of something. You see that? It's just the way we tick. And the reason that we, way we tick this way is because God made us to know Him saying, you are all right with me, I will protect you, I am your guardian. When you walk out from God, you've got to be your own righteousness. And we live in a walk and speak in Liverpool, on the telly, wherever it is. Everybody's after a righteousness. Something, a CV that says, accept me. 
And any time we get a gentle reminder that our, our CV, our acceptability, our righteousness is not bulletproof, we freak out. Sometimes we just withdraw. Nowadays people call it lack of self-esteem. And it's terrible what we do to the kids in school. It's terrible. Because we see that they lack self-esteem, so we start telling them how good they are. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so good. And so whose performance are they looking at again? They're looking inward on themselves again. You say, oh, you're not very good at reading. Here you go. You're not very good at reading. I'm going to give you something really, really easy so you'll succeed at it. And then you'll say, I'm really good at reading. Problem is, they're not very good at reading. And that's a real problem if reading is your righteousness. If you're able to say, I'm not very good at reading, that's okay. I can do this or that, or God loves me anyway. You know, so what? But what we do is we try to affirm our youngsters by telling them, find something that you're really good at and then you'll feel good about it. So what we're doing is we're offering them a righteousness but because it's on the basis of their performance, is it going to fly? For a little while. Then sooner or later they'll bump into somebody who's better. And their fragile self-image will just cave in. We need to find a righteousness beyond ourselves. And Paul says here in verse verse 4 he says listen if ever there was somebody who could have confidence in their own performance their own righteousness it was him he had the equivalent of a gold medal in sports he had represented his country he had won the Booker Prize he had got a knighthood he was exemplary in the domain that was particularly important to him, which was the religious domain. And you see it there in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, my righteousness, my achievements, my actions, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which was bang in line with what a true Israelite would be. If ever anybody's in the people of God, they get snipped on the, the eighth day. I have more. Uh, I'm of the people of Israel. I an attendee at Speak Baptist Church, don't you know? Surely that counts for something in God's eyes. No. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got pedigree. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, perfect. A Pharisee. Amongst the most elite and dedicated sect. I mean, these guys, their performance levels are pretty good. I mean, I speak, preach to you from the Bible every week. They memorise the Bible every week. Okay, you could call them up and say, you know, sort of, what is, um, what, what, what's Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18 like James was doing, to us, uh, doing for the kids early? And that would just, straight off, in Hebrew. And Hebrew's read back to front, so for me that's really confusing anyway. So these guys, were cl- they had everything. These were your corporate elites. These were the guys who had the equivalent of the Bentley. Look at me. I have all these things to wrap around myself, cover myself with, and say, ta-da, accept me. And that was exactly what Paul did for an awful long time, even to the point where, through the zeal of protecting that kind of righteousness, that performance living, he would even try to kill people who said that it wasn't like living like that. He persecuted the church. The church simply went round spreading the message that don't trust in yourself and your righteousness. You need the one that God provides through Jesus. And that was such a threat to their power, to their control over their life, that with a good, clean conscience, thinking he was doing God a favour, he went out trying to kill Christians. He was zealous. He was determined. He was serving God, don't you know? 
And then something changed. Oh, something changed. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Okay? He met Jesus and something happened. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may again that I gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. So for all his life he'd been living saying, I'm going to try and create my own righteousness and then he bumps into Jesus and it knocks him flat. My righteousness, my righteousness, my righteousness. And then he says, suddenly I found something. And you see that there. You know, he'd been living for this thing, getting my righteousness. Then he bumps into this thing and it's described there, the word is a surpassing, uh, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. That word surpassing greatness, I understand if you boil it down in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I understand that, it basically you can translate it, the super thing. All my life I've been living these, by this set of rules, this set of regulations, playing along to everybody else's game, presenting people with a CV by the clothes that I wear, by the way that I talk, by the places that I go, by the jobs that I do, by the way I bring up my kids, by the, by the, the amount of zeal and energy I put into serving and doing for other people. I, I just played this game day in, day out, there you go, accept me, accept me, accept me. Accept me, God, you have to. I've got an angle on you, God, now. I've done this, 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 and this. Because I've done this for you, you owe me. You have to. I'm angry when you don't deliver what I want you to do. I'm trying to get control of you, and I'm trying to keep control of my life. He bumps into Jesus, and he sees there, in a moment, face to face with Christ, one with a righteousness that blows his out of the water. And he says, I wonder if there's the possibility that I could be included in the righteousness of Christ. Could I be brought into him? In fact, it says here, doesn't it, that I may gain Christ, that I may know Christ, that I may be found in him. And suddenly he looks back at his old righteousness and he says, rubbish. They weren't just something that were there. They were... They, they were lost. They, were, they actually counted against him. And this is why, I mean, that, that word rubbish... It's closer to the word dung. There are actually some translations of the Bible that put in the word turd. Um, in, there was one 17th century guy who used the S word. I, you, you know what I mean. I don't need to say it. So basically what he was saying is, I used to wrap myself up in all this performance and present a CV and doing it was a little bit like taking the doggy doings out the street and smearing it all over me and going, look, don't I smell great, baby? Aren't I attractive? Don't you want me? And that's what happens in God's eyes every time you come to God and go, Look at me, God. Aren't you so lucky to have me? Because all our attempts, even our attempts of good deeds, are tainted and broken and soiled by our own self-interest. The Lord's not stupid. He knows that when somebody's doing something religious, it's not because they love him, it's because they love themselves and are doing something that they think will help get them where they want to get to. 
He's not stupid. In fact, he hates it. It's a stench in his nostrils. All through the Old Testament, he's always telling the, 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 the people what he doesn't want them to do for him. He's like, why are you offering all these sacrifices? They say, you told us to. But not like that. Not with, you're just going through the motions. You don't give a rip about me. They're not because of a genuine love out of your heart. You're just serving yourself. Stop it. All your sacrifices are a stench in my nostrils. Why? Because what they were doing was using them Good things they were using for their own righteousness and it was odious to God. He hates holier than thouism. And he sees through it. Yet we're intoxicated by it. So we bump into somebody who's got the nice clothes and they look good and we, and we sidle on up and they're like, you know, I'll smell yours if you smell mine. And we, all, we, we just play this game and we dance along with it. And we're terribly worried that we'll get left out because of it. And here's Paul and he's going... I found what we really should be investing in. And it's not a philosophy, and it's not a set of rules and regulations, and it's not a tradition. It's not a performance. It's what Christ has done. Knowing what we smelled like, he came, and he paid, and he says, be wrapped up in me. You know, some of you, when you fail, you say the cross isn't enough. And I know this because I talk to you. Because some of you, you're confronted with your own failure again and again, and so am I. And what do you do when you fail? You start to punish yourself. You start to crush yourself. You won't let it go. I tell you about Jesus, and you say, no, I've got to hold on to it. I've got to atone. I've got to make good. What are you saying? You're saying that the punishment Jesus carried on your heart behalf wasn't enough. You're saying that you want to atone and your atonement is better than his. You're saying that there is still punishment outstanding and when Jesus said, it is finished, he was lying. Do you see how we can try and be religious in two ways? Number one, we can try and present our good deeds and number two, we can try and carry our own sin. And Paul says, I was into that game. And it sucks you. There's no joy, there's no life, there's no celebration, there's no singing the songs when that happens. No, 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 no. Look, Christ, he's not a solution, he's a person. And he comes and he includes you in him. He wraps you up, it's personal for him. He becomes your super thing and suddenly all your pride, you're puffing up your feathers, you're, look at me, look at me, don't I smell good? It's binned off. Because you've met with Jesus. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Loss. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who's done this. They've said, I used to live with me as my source of confidence and acceptability between others and with God. But now what I've done is I've realised I'm living a sham and it won't work. And if I'm looking for confidence in me, I'm only going to get my heart broken. But praise God, he has provided a righteousness that even me, with all my smelliness, 
can receive. Such is his love and grace. I will now transfer my confidence from my righteousness, my performance, and I will transfer it to him. I will boast in him. I will find my joy in him. He is my confidence. He is my glory. So what I want people to do is when they see me, I want them to, to go away saying, Whoa! He thinks a lot of Jesus. Why is that? Whoa! He's untouchable. Be- He's not bothered by what people think. He's not worried about being out uh, away from God. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. But of course it's an ongoing thing, isn't it? Uh, it? You see, the reason Paul writes this is because they already knew that. Put up your hand if you've heard a sermon from me on this before. You were obviously asleep at the other 20 of these I've done in the last two years. Okay? See, when you become a believer, you initially make that choice and then you spend the, le- the rest of your life working it into the different areas of your life, don't you? I've been writing a list this week, because I've been preparing this, of all the ways, still, 20 years being a Christian, and I'm still trying to find righteousness in my performance or the things that I do, or I'm still trying to sort of sidle on up to you and get you to like me, because if you don't like me, I feel crushed. I mean, the Lord said, you're in with me, fella. But I'm happy with that, I want you to like me. Isn't that stupid? It's nuts. Because no offence, love you guys, but his opinion should count more to me than yours. And yet we're all the same, aren't we? So what we do as Christians is we spend our life trying to work this in and say, I want rid of all those things that bring me fear. I want rid of all those worries. I want to be somebody who's able to stand in the grace of God knowing that he has done everything. And as I finish, and before we come to the table that speaks of the things that we've been talking about, I just want to say three things about what happened to somebody who becomes a, a believer and somebody who is trying to grow in what Paul wants here. Somebody who's saying Jesus is the surpassing greatness. Number one, you'll grow in humility. You'll realise that there's no room for pride. There's no holier than thouism. You'll realise that you're an addict to getting your own self-righteousness. It's why you have to justify yourself. It's why, it's why some of you are going to have an argument this week with somebody and then when the argument's over, you'll go away and you'll rerun the argument not because what is right and wrong is really important to you but because what's really important to you is you being right and them being wrong. And that's what you'll do and you'll put loads of emotional energy into it. But suddenly, if you've met this, you'll realise, you know what? I've had an argument with somebody. There's a really good chance if Jesus needed to die for me, if I'm so smelling, I have a tendency to wrap myself in nonsense and treat other people badly. Could it be that I might be wrong? You see, I'm an addict, but it was him who says, stop your addiction and I will open your eyes and I will give you the strength to come and trust in me. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. And this not from yourself, but the gift of God. In other words, even the, the transfer of confidence to him has to come by his grace. None of us can say, I've arrived because I've realised that I wipe muck all over myself. You can't go there and march around with pride in that because it's him who has to show you. You couldn't even see or smell it yourself. He does it all. So we become humble people who are expectant. What else happens? We grow in stability. If your righteousness is something in you, then you're always vulnerable, aren't you? So if your righteousness is in your husband, or in your wife, or in your kids, or your zeal, or your sobriety, or your ministry, or the fact that you keep your temper, brilliant! Those are all great things! 
But what happens if any one of those things get taken away from you? What happens if your marriage falls apart? You'll be crushed, you'll be devastated. What happens if your kids turn out to be drug dealers? How are you going to deal with that? You won't be able to look yourself in the mirror. What happens if you run out of energy and you've got no zeal left and everybody's running past you? You'll feel worthless. What happens if, well, you haven't had a drink for a while? I know God loves me because I haven't had a drink for a while. And you get on the vodka at Christmas. You'll feel terrible. What happens if your ministry collapses because nobody is that bothered? What happens if you say, you know, I keep my calm and somebody pushes your button in such a way that you flip out? You see, if those things are your righteousness, they can be snatched from you or you more likely will give them away. But if Christ is your righteousness, it is outside of you. And he is untouchable. He can't be touched. He's in heaven. He calls you in and says, you're under me. You're under my umbrella. Nobody can take that from you. Even your own failures. All those things that we look to for identification and righteousness and who we are and standing can be snatched and you'll be gutted. But he says, you are mine. So in fact, actually, when somebody comes and criticises you, they're actually doing you, I'm not suggesting the manner in which they do it is okay, but they're doing you a great favour because if they do that, they point out some way in which you, whenever we react badly when we criticise, it's because it's a righteousness thing. It's like, I'm this, and we say it's because it's right and wrong, but actually it's like, oh, dear, you know, don't you take care. I have to maintain my self-image and my view of who I am. I, you know, I can't let anybody say anything against me. But actually when somebody does criticise you and... And they're probably helping you without realising to see where you're clinging and what you're clinging on to, to self-righteousness. When I was a teenager, I know it's hard for you to believe this, but my unsanctified pagan friends had got my spiritual number. My nickname, um, when I was 17, 18, 19, was BAP, short for Bad Attitude Problem. Um, And the reason I got that was because I would not, could not lose an argument. And I would say really cool things. Why are you laughing? And every because uh, I would not lose an argument, and I'd say really cruel and nasty things to make sure. Why? Because I was trying to maintain my righteousness. And here were their pagan friends; they could see spiritually the muck on me that I couldn't see myself. And so, what am I? I'm a recovering bad attitude problem. Can I tell you? It's still there, and you know it. That's what Kosh laughs. And I pray God that I'm not as self-righteous as I was. And I fear for the damage I do to you when I am. But now, because me getting it right is not my stability, is not my righteousness, I'm free to be able to move on and live free. But finally, it just means as well I'll be rejoicing. See, all the other religions, when they worship, what they do is they go to somewhere and they present stuff to their God. You get that? They're presenting their righteousnesses. They make an offering. They, they tidy up a doll. They chant a certain number of times. They do all... They say, here you are. Here's why you should accept us. That's what worship means to them. What a cruel, nasty way. What a horrible picture of God. As if he's there sitting there going, yep, they're really suffering to give me stuff. Now I might be like, loving to them. That's not what the God of the Bible's like. No, the God of the Bible comes and he says, here, have a righteousness that you cannot get on your own, you don't deserve, you've done your very best to fight um, me giving it to you, but here it is, I love you. Be free, have it. And so whenever we worship, it's because of the joy of what has been done for us. We should be the happiest of people. So as I finish, where's your confidence today? 
Is it in your efforts, your acceptability? Are the ways in which you put your trust in Jesus, but you know there's other areas of your life that you're so protective over because the idea, could it be that it's, I don't know, the way that you look or speaking out in public? Could it be when people come to you? Are you mean-spirited and gossipy about people because you use that as a way to, to, to improve your righteousness and lower others so you feel like you're higher up the ladder than somebody else? A whole stack of other things. Do you have to be listened to? Do you take it personally if people won't take what you say personally straight on board? What do you do? How do you feel when you fail? What happens if you don't finish everything on your to-do list? Where are the things that you're putting your confidence, your self-image in, other than Christ? What you need to say is, do you know what? Those things can come and go, but Christ is my righteousness. Please, let's be a church where we find our hope, our confidence, our boasting, our joy in him. <coughs> but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Let's pray. Uh, I wonder what we do. Matty, could you go and recover Jane from in there? Would that be all right, please? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in our hands is a book written by the God who made us. And therefore... We're not surprised when we see something of a mirror image of ourselves being explained in there. And we immediately want to pray, Lord, please forgive us for all the ways in which we try to create a righteousness for ourselves. Quite often good things that we've done, Lord, and we want to repent of doing them if they've been done to get a record and a righteousness of our own. Lord, we're so slow to remember this. It's a whole life transformation. We thank you that you are here for us, patient with us. Lord, help us to be a church that steers clear of putting our confidence in the flesh in people. Please, may it be abundantly clear to each one of us and to the world around us that Christ is our confidence in all things. He is our righteousness. And we thank you that you sent him. Thank you that he was perfect in any way, every way. Thank you that he paid for our sins. And thank you that he is all we will ever need. Thank you that he is the super thing. In his name we pray. Amen. It's a song who, who everyone could save themselves. It's got the thing that you're singing about. Uh, if you're